0: I'm wild again, beguiled again A simpering, whimpering child again Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered am I
1: Hello and welcome to episode 1713 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
0: I'm doing all right. How was your weekend?
1: My weekend was good.
0: Mm-hmm. Mine was too. I watched 9 hours of Angels baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I have a problem, Meg. I don't know if it's a problem. It's not a problem for me, really. But I watch basically every inning of every Angels game now, and it's not a good team. It's just no. really not <laughs> but
1: Worse lately
0: <laughs> Yeah but it does employ one Shohei Otani and that's pretty much Enough for me they were playing the Rays so at least I was watching one good team Yeah, And I got to see Wander Franco But yeah. he was not the main draw For me it's just Otani who Like <laughs> it used to be that I would watch his starts as a pitcher And maybe I would check In on his plate appearances as a batter And then I sure. would flip away Now, I'm really just riveted. I just watch all Angels games so that I don't miss a moment of Shohei Otani and trying to restrain myself here because Otani is in New York this week, which means this is probably not the last time we'll be talking about him. But I just can't say enough about him. He is incredible. And... Despite my extremely high expectations for him, he has met or exceeded them, and it is wonderful to watch. He now has a 174 OPS plus and a 177 ERA plus. He has almost no platoon split, and he had a big one in his rookie season with the Angels. Now he has 1,000 plus OPSs against lefties and righties. He has 5.6 baseball reference war, which puts him 0.8 war ahead of anyone else. And on pace for almost twelve, like eleven point eight war he is yeah. still just behind Vlad in fangraff's war, like a tenth of a win now behind Vlad, but still, like if you take the baseball reference war, which I will because it makes him look better, sure, then there has not been a season like this since conservatively, I mean Pedro Martinez in two thousand. Or Barry Bonds in 2001 and 2002. Like, that's the last time we've seen a baseball reference war in that sort of stratosphere. So, we're talking 20 years, essentially. And I think you could make a good case that if he keeps this up, which is like not certain, obviously, and he could get hurt, he could be fatigued, he could wear down. But if he were to sustain this, and there's a lot about it that seems sustainable, like, I think this could have a a pretty good case for the best season ever. Basically, yeah. I don't want I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but given the level of competition in the league, which is like higher now than it was even in the early two thousands, I yeah. mean Bonds was was Bonds, but he was still facing pitchers who were throwing like four to five miles per hour slower than pitchers are today. Like the caliber of competition keeps getting higher and higher, and it keeps getting harder and harder to separate yourself from the pack like this, and so. If he were to keep this up and we're less than halfway through the Angels season now, they've played 77 games as we speak here on Monday and he's hit 25 homers and (laughs) the stats are what they are. So if you essentially double them and a little more, like I think you could make the case that especially given the degree of difficulty of how he's doing it, basically splitting it down the middle between pitching war and batting war could be the best season ever <laughs> I want to
1: spend a moment on his June just on the hitting side of things because mm-hmm. you know the whole the like his season line is is terrific but this last month has just been you know and there are a couple of guys where they've had really superlative Junes but let's let's spend a moment on show nices And I'm gonna do a thing that I caution fangrafts writers against, but I think Mm -hmm. that this is an exception to the rule. I often tell our writers, and they know this, and so it is a thing that I really mostly have to remind folks of when they're like, you know, getting their sea legs at the site and they're they're finding their way that Sometimes we need to resist the urge to narrate the player page in a piece because, you know, <laughs> a reader can look at the player page on their own and they can right. dig around and they often do. And so we want to we want to use that as a jumping off point to, you know, Tell them something and show them something they don't necessarily know and tell them why it matters. That's a big part mm-hmm. of writing. Like, why do we care about this? You have to answer that question every time. Why should someone care about this? And if you can't answer it, then you gotta do some work before you submit a draft. <laughs>
0: it's pretty easy to answer for Otati. <laughs> right. But yes. And
1: sometimes a guy's player page is just so superlative and so incredible that it it is a thing that we should take a moment to like luxuriate in. Mm-hmm. So in June Botani is walking eighteen point six percent of the time. He has a twenty nine percent K rate. Whatever, we don't care about that. We don't care about those Ks. We care no, about the fact that he's walking almost nineteen percent of the time. He is hitting 314, 442, two, eight fifty seven. <laughs> <laughs> he has a five forty three ISO. That's yep. that's quite high. He has a two thirty seven WRC plus. His he has a five nineteen Woba Ben. <laughs> he's got a 519 woba. I love the line that he put up on Sunday so much because it is just everything that he does well as a hitter including some of the things that I still think despite the fact that you and I have both talked about them and both told people no pay but more attention to this part that he does not get nearly enough credit for so yesterday he went 3 for 4 with a homer, a triple a double, he had 3 RBI, 2 runs scored, he stole a base and he walked (laughs) Mm -hmm. He did not hit for a cycle, but I submit to you that this is more impressive than that.
0: Yeah. I mean, he got on base. He got to first via the walk, but sure. then he got himself to second. Yeah. In essence, it's basically the same <laughs> as a cycle.
1: Yeah, and he, he did the hard stuff. He did the hardest parts of a cycle, right? He had a yeah. triple. He had a double. He had a home run. Boy, mm-hmm. what a home run he hit. Oh,
0: my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's hard <laughs> to choose between the best home run of the weekend because yes. the Friday home run he hit – which according to StatCast went 453 feet and it was like 116 miles per hour off the bat and it hit the D-ring catwalk at Tropicana Field and Joe Madden, who has managed many a game at Tropicana Field, disputed the 453 feet measure. He said, that's wrong. It hit the top of the catwalk above the scoreboard. There's no way that's 453. I'm sorry, I've been here many times and I've never seen that in a game or in batting practice. Regardless, that was an absolute bomb, which he followed up in that same game with a bunt single, which he does yeah. from time to time, his fourth bunt single of the season. And every game in which he's had a bunt single, he has also hit a ball 110 <sighs> miles per hour or more, just showcasing everything he can do. And yeah. then, yeah, on Sunday, he did it all. The double, which like went almost all the way to the wall, was a broken bat double. Doesn't matter. He hit it out there anyway. And the home run, which was off Pete Fairbanks, who is a good pitcher and I believe had not allowed a home run to a lefty in his career. He has career reverse splits for whatever that's worth. And (laughs) Otani takes a ball 95 miles per hour on the inside corner, takes it oppo just like several rows into the stands in like left center field. I mean, I don't know how he does that sort of thing. So I don't know whether it's more impressive when he gets all of it and just absolutely crushes it, or when he doesn't get all of it and it still gets out and it looks like no home run you've ever seen other than, right. I don't know, maybe some John Carlos Stanton shots.
1: Right. He is, in, he is in the 93rd percentile for sprint speed and the 98th percentile for hard hit percentage. He is. He is in the top percentile for max exit velocity. He hits mm. the ball so hard, he runs so fast. Yep. He's in the top percentile for barrel percentage. I mean, like some yep. of these stats, like uh, we, you know, we've reminded people that that some of these stats are are descriptive. Some of them tell you a little less than you think. Like really, uh, <laughs> average exit velocity. Sometimes you got to look under the hood on that one. And then you look mm-hmm. at Shoyotani and you're like, holy Moses!
0: <laughs> yeah, and the reason I cite his WAR, which like normally with someone who's so hot, I would be cautious about saying you could just double it or extrapolate over the full season. But he seems to be getting better in ways that are pretty believable. Like (laughs) his full season expected Woba is the same as his Woba, even a little higher. So it's not as if he has been especially fortunate on batted balls. He just crushes the ball constantly. And on the pitching side, he has totally curtailed the walk problem that he had earlier this season. And so that makes me optimistic, too, in addition to the fact that he's been more durable. He had a a season-high pitch count his last time out, and he's pitching now sometimes with five days rest instead of six days rest. So it seems like he's getting more innings, even if he maybe has a little less good batted ball luck going forward. He might make up for it in just bulk workload. So again, like, can he sustain this for a full season just in terms of energy level? I don't know. But nothing about the skill set makes me think regression is in store here. Like, if you took this same model of Otani and just had him keep playing games, then I kind of believe that he could keep doing this. So that's what makes it so amazing to me. And you can hear in my voice, like, I just have this dumb grin on my face like hours a day when I'm just watching him or thinking about him and seeing him excel in this way. So. Really, Sam used to do those articles at ESPN about the most watchable player in baseball, and he did that the last couple of years, and he came up with the answer of Fernando Tatis, which obviously he was the most watchable player in baseball, and he hasn't done anything to lose that title. He is just as watchable as he was, but I feel like Otani has taken it from him, and yeah. I don't. that's no slight on Tatis, obviously, who has been amazing as well, and... Your mileage may vary and your tolerance for Angels baseball may vary. But still, I just don't see how anyone could be more watchable than Otani has been this year. It's just been an unreal, incredible run. And Tatis was asked over the weekend which player he's most excited to watch. And he said Otani too. I guess he couldn't have said himself. That might have sounded sort of conceited.
1: Yeah, it's been been really spectacular. I feel like when Trout went down... I don't want to say that there aren't a lot of fun and wonderful players in the game, and I, and so I was trying to not be sad, but I was sad that we didn't mm-hmm. get to watch, you know, the version of Trout we had was just like so incredible. He was putting on such a show in the early going. And I still miss watching that thumb looking guy play baseball because <laughs> he oh. is the best. But mm-hmm. I feel like between Vladdy and Tatis And Otani, it's not that I don't miss him, but I miss him a lot less (laughs) than I thought I would. And it's been such a delight to have, you know, just another reminder that we are so fortunate to get to watch such incredible players right now. And when you look at the top 10, just on, this is just on the position player side. So, you know, I'm not looking at the combined war leader board. You've already talked about (laughs) how his combined war stacks up, but you look at the top 10 uh, war leaders on the position player side at Fangrass right now, and it's You know, we have Vlad at the top and then Tatis, Correa, Ronald Acuna Mm -hmm. Jr., Xander Bogarts, Nick Castellanos, Cedric Mullins, which we're going to have to. I know we we got an email about Cedric Mullins today, which I have not had a chance to read. But to all you Orioles fans out there, I am so happy for you. (laughs) Yes, I am happy for Cedric Mullins. And I am also happy for you because Mm -hmm. you have had. More bright spots than I anticipated this (laughs) season, and I'm glad for that. And then you have Otani and Marcus Simeon and Trey Turner, and it is just like a really fun amalgamation of guys. You noted the last time we recorded just like the international presence that we Mm -hmm. have here is really lovely. It's just, you know, it's a good time to be a baseball fan in a lot of ways. There are things that we could improve, and I hope we do because – we certainly have a game that's worthy of improving because, gosh, look at these these dudes. It's great. It's just a great
0: thing. And that makes it more impressive that Otani has monopolized my attention like this because there are so many competing attractions. And I'm trying not to have tunnel vision here because there are so many great players doing so many great things. And just this weekend, you had Tatis with his three homer game and you had that incredible Cabrian Hayes play, which was enabled by Yadier Molina being not the most fleet of foot, but But nonetheless, (laughs) incredible play. It was still amazing. Kershaw, the old guy still got it, striking out 13 Cubs and he's been fantastic despite throwing like 90 again and Vlad Jr. homers every other game. I mean, really just so many players. And so here I am watching the Angels every day and, you know, also other teams and players. But still, I want Trout to be back just so I can see some better baseball players as I am watching the Angels in between Otani plate appearances and innings. And it's a strange experience for me because I have not watched one team like this in so long because – I haven't been a fan of any particular team. I haven't covered one specific team. And so usually I'm flipping around and I'm rarely watching full baseball games because either I'm trying to see as many teams or players as I can, or I'm trying to catch up and not sit there and watch a three-hour game. Baseball games take a while and baseball is only part of the job I do at the ringer. And so I always have to be reading or playing or watching something else. So I try to squeeze in the baseball where I can. But with Otani now, I just cannot look away, essentially. Yeah. And it's just become appointment viewing for me and my wife, where it's just like, what time is Otani playing today? Okay, we'll just set those three hours aside, essentially. Also, the weird, wonderful fun facts that you get after seemingly every game, like after he hit the the leadoff homer. On Friday, I guess it was, he became, according to Jeremy Frank on Twitter, the first AL or NL player with a leadoff home run and a pitching win in the same season since Jimmy Ryan for the 1888 Chicago White Stockings. That's just the quintessential Otani stat where it's, you know, he's the first to do something since the 19th century and the Angels lost anyway. (laughs) So, So it's strange for me to have this experience of watching one team. And not really rooting for that team. It's not like I'm an Angels fan now. I'm watching for Otani. And if the Angels lose, I don't particularly care because like they're far enough out of the playoff picture that they're not going to make it if we're being realistic. I mean, they have an 8% chance to make the playoffs now. And if they were closer, if they didn't have two good teams ahead of them in the division and a bunch of teams ahead of them in the wildcard race, then I might root for them to make the playoffs just to get Trout and Otani into October. But that's just not going to (laughs) happen realistically this season, I don't think. And so I'm not really expending much mental energy on that. So really, I'm just rooting for good Otani outcomes, which I guess indirectly means I'm rooting for the Angels. Like, I I want them to score runs so that Otani gets five plate appearances instead of four (laughs) in any given game. Like, that's the level of my rooting for the Angels. And it's just not a fun team, Otani aside. and. You know, once Trout gets back, like they will have a a competent core of position players, at least. Like they might have three of the top. 10 players in baseball in that lineup. Yeah. Rendon has not played like that this year, but I would have ranked him that high coming into the season. So if you have Trout Otani, Rendon, Jared Walsh, who's been really good, David Fletcher, who is good, and I enjoy watching him. Justin Upton was having a good year before he got hurt. Maybe Joe Adele will be back up later this season. He's hitting well in AAA. There's a lot to like there, but there's just not enough because there's yeah. still some weak spots in the lineup. It's good for my minor league free agent team that got. Shepler is getting plate appearances, but it's not so great for the Angels. The defense is truly atrocious. Oh gosh. I, I think you can look at the defensive efficiency, which I think is second worst this season, but watching them as much as I have been, it's really not good. And the bullpen's not good. The pitching has just perennially been their problem with injuries and even with their healthy pitchers underperforming. So it's just a, an odd, odd experience of watching this team without really rooting for this team, just rooting for one specific player, just sort of being spellbound, transfixed by this one particular player. And there's this online culture, basically, of like Otani stands. Yeah. You have Twitter accounts and and YouTube accounts and Instagram accounts. Shout out to Portia, who runs at Shohei Save Us on Twitter. And I interviewed for a, a piece last week, and she's a podcast. Podcast listener, so perhaps she is listening, and she's part of a group of Otani fans that call themselves the Showbays. That's like a large portion of the fun for me of following the season is not just the stats and the highlights. But also the people who are so excited about Otani and it's his teammates, it's his opponents, but it's also his fans like around the world, really. And the way that people document his every (laughs) movement and expression and just how much fun he is to watch, because I kind of wrote about this on Friday, too, but... It's just odd to see someone who is so skilled and goes above and beyond everyone else. And there's this trope essentially of like the athlete archetype of like the player who is just so good, so talented that he's kind of a jerk and gets away with it or gets special treatment or is like a ultra efficient robot and is just weird and doesn't seem very relatable like you might have the the Michael Jordan who seems like just sort of this just perpetually aggrieved narcissist type and just doesn't seem to be having much fun because he's so driven and so hyper competitive and then you have like the Tom Brady or the Novak Djokovic who, who's just like trying to extract every last bit of performance as they can and going through all sorts of strange routines and everything and then you have Otani who is like as talented talented as basically any athlete in the world at this point, and certainly as talented as anyone in baseball, and just seems silly and like he's just having fun out there. And it's a, a strange experience. It's like, hey, you can be incredibly talented, but also just kind of an easygoing guy seemingly at the same time and like I'm sure he's working as hard as anyone but it doesn't seem like he is as miserable as a lot of elite athletes are like he said in 2017 I do not feel pressure at all when it comes to playing baseball and this is being 100% honest playing baseball is genuinely fun for me and I enjoy every moment of my time on the field whether it's practice or game time it's like he doesn't seem like he's suffering for his art here like he's he's great but also he's just having fun and he is uh consenting to umpire inspections with a smile and picking up litter on his way to first base and handing bats to bat boys and it's just something else
1: like there are a lot of there are a lot of ways to be in the world right and you know we love Mike Trout and I find him charming and I like mm-hmm. that he likes weather and hanging out with his wife but <laughs> he's a more reserved personality seemingly and mm-hmm. there are a lot of different ways to to be in the world but it is a very cool thing when this kind of talent seems to reside in a person who as far as we know seems very affable and to enjoy what he's doing and enjoy the time he spends with his teammates and not that he doesn't take what he does seriously but perhaps is able to place it in the proper perspective it's just a very cool it's just a very cool and rare thing and um i don't know that it's one i I don't know that that approach is the one that's necessarily incentivized by the professional sports apparatus and i don't know that i'd go so far as saying that that apparatus necessarily incentivizes the opposite. But it is a thing that I think people have to make a conscious choice to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's neat when when that's the choice they make, you know?
0: Yeah. I feel almost disloyal to Trout getting so giddy over Otani while Trout is absent. But it just is the case that Otani is, I think, more eye-catching than Trout. Not better than Trout. I mean, Trout is the best at what he does. He doesn't pitch, obviously, but he is just not quite as incandescent, I guess, as Otani. Like I love watching the wars add up yeah. <laughs> when when Trout is good and he does all the things that he does extremely well. But it just it doesn't quite leap off the screen in the way that it does with Otani. And like Trout has incredible power and incredible speed and even better plate discipline and, yeah. and all of that. Like there's nothing Otani does better than Trout except pitch, which is a pretty big thing. <laughs> but I just don't know what it is. But Otani is just so singular. That I get more of a charge out of watching him on a day to day basis, even as I appreciate Trout in a similar way. It's just not quite the same aesthetic experience, somehow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We still love you, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Go yes, well. We do very soon please
0: yes please and i don't know whether joe madden is a good manager or not and i don't mean that as an insult like <laughs> I, I i don't really know whether anyone is a yeah. good manager to be honest <laughs> but i do think that joe madden is among the best managers that otani could have agreed and that is more important to me <laughs> than anything else right now i just think that if you could somehow redo the past few years and put otani on every other team or with every other manager I don't know that the outcomes would be as good in most of them. I I think in some cases he would be forced to specialize and do one or the other or. The reins would not be taken off the way that they have here with Madden and Otani. He just he seems willing to let Otani go. And that is what I want to happen. So I'm grateful to Madden for making that happen. You know, independent of his other qualities as a manager. I, I think he's kind of the ideal manager for Otani at this particular time. And the only thing that I'm left wondering now is how you get Otani to play both ways in the all-star game, because I think that has to happen. Despite my reservations about his fatigue and how he'll hold up, If he wants to pitch and hit in the All-Star game and if the Angels are okay with him pitching and hitting in the All-Star game, I think it would be a great thing for baseball because he is not on the national stage all that often. All-Star week is going to be his big chance and hopefully that's a a big home run derby performance, but also hitting and pitching in the All-Star game against all of the best players in baseball who we were just talking about. That would be a pretty special moment. And so I wonder how you achieve that exactly in this game, because presumably he's not going to be the starting pitcher. They're more deserving AL starting pitchers. So yeah, I don't know if if one of them would step aside and say, yeah, Otani gets the first inning and then you could surrender the DH and then just have a series of pinch hitters throughout the game, which might be feasible because you have so many bench bats in the All-Star game, or whether you could start him at DH and then move him to pitcher later in the game, and then you lose the DH, but you don't have as many innings left to go, and you can just pinch hit a few times. That would probably work. Or whether you could just say, hey, it's an exhibition game, so who cares (laughs) about the rules? Like, Otani he gets to pitch and hit, and also the AL keeps the DH now because, like, it's more important than that happens than that this be a a real baseball game. Right. So I don't know which is the solution, but if everyone involved wants that to happen, I hope that they find a way to do it.
1: Right. I think the All Star Game should be a you know it should it should give the suggestion of a normal baseball game. <laughs> yeah. But I think that it is very much one where if if what you're prioritizing is we have this look-in audience and we're here to have some fun and we want to showcase all of the best dudes doing all their best dude stuff, Mm -hmm. then you take the the wrapper, the container, the... Flower pot. What was Boris's analogy? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, you take the vase, ta- I think. Maybe. Yeah, you take you take the the vase of baseball, <laughs> and you fill mm-hmm. it with all the good fun stuff. And the only thing that should really uh, matter is that no one um, be put in a position where they are likely to injure themselves. And as long as that is true, you have you have succeeded. Um, mm-hmm. And so whatever weird, but you know, just tell people you're testing a new uh, rule. In yeah, that game, sure. and uh, you're just gonna you know, you're just doing a, a a look and see. You're just doing a little let's let's look and see. And then we get to watch Otani do all the best stuff yeah. he does as one of the best, most fun guys. So that's my, my the rule is that
0: Otani gets to do whatever he wants. <laughs> I'm and fine you, know, with that one. you
1: know who wins? All
0: of us <laughs> Yes, exactly. All right. So Otani will be playing the Yankees all this week. And I wanted to talk for a moment about them. It was not a great weekend for the Yankees no. in Boston. They got swept by the Red Sox for the second time this season. They are now 0-6 against the Red Sox. I believe they're 5-8 and against the Rays. And Yankees fandom is melting down again. I swear, like, several times this season, I just see Cashman trending on Twitter, and then I see Boone trending (laughs) on Twitter, and it's the same refrain each time. And, uh, you know, understandably, this team has underperformed. I understand why the fan base is up in arms. One aspect of it that's interesting to me is that the Red Sox have a couple of ex-Yankees who have pitched well for them and who the Yankees essentially gave away or let the Red Sox claim in Adam Adovino and Garrett Whitlock. And the Yankees traded Adovino to the Red Sox before this season in essentially just a salary dump. They traded Adovino and a prospect to Boston because of Adovino's $7 million salary, I think it was, and they were trying to maneuver and stay under the luxury tax threshold. And that's one way that they did that or tried to do that. And Garrett Whitlock was in the Yankee system and was a Rule 5 pick by the Red Sox. And so there's a way in which this makes it look even worse for the Yankees. Like I saw a lot of tweets that were about Ottavino and Whitlock, not that Bullpen has been the big problem for the yeah. Yankees. Like, they have the best bullpen war in baseball. They have yep. the best bullpen park adjusted fit. Like, that has been a strength for them. Yeah. It is the offense that yeah. we've talked about and, and can perhaps touch on again here. But it does look bad when your rival, who is leading you in the division, just gets a couple guys who have been good for them without giving up anything really except some money and they both pitched well against the Yankees and Adovino has pitched in four games against them allowed a 2.08 ERA and a 369 opponent OPS Whitlock has pitched three games against them and has not allowed a run in those games 410 opponent OPS and so That just highlights it. And I think, and and so in some of the, you know, fire Cashman tweets that I saw, a lot of it was about how he gave out of, you know, away, and that was, you know, maybe more of an example of ownership mandating that a move be made to right. stay under a, a certain spending limit. So if you want to identify one person who might be responsible, you could probably point to the Steinbrenner's even before you point to Cashman or Boone. But that does sort of highlight why trades between rivals don't happen very often. Right. It was an exception when the Yankees traded Aravino to the Red Sox it was the first Yankees Red Sox trade in in years that doesn't happen very often and you can sort of see why like here's an example of why because when someone pitches well for your rival especially against you and things aren't going great for your team then it looks bad even if like the absence of Aravino and Whitlock is not really the problem for the Yankees this year it just looks bad and yeah. so That's why you see so rarely trades being made between rivals, even when they match up at times, because it can just come back to bite you from a PR perspective.
1: Yeah, and it feels, I think as a fan, it feels uniquely biting. You know, it's one thing Mm when, uh, like imagine this example involves the Red Sox that you're citing, but like, you know, imagine you have a team that has a trade reputation like the Rays do. and you know there's been some investigation to how well earned that reputation is but we'll just take it at face value like you know that or you already worry you're going to you're gonna be had right you're gonna mm-hmm. be bamboozled because they're a, a team that has a reputation for taking scraps and making them great and uh, and then imagine you're the Yankees and it's a team that has such a low payroll and then you feel you just feel terrible right you feel yeah. you feel like you've been had twice mm-hmm. and I think you're right that it is it is a psychological barrier that a lot of front offices have not only from a PR perspective but I, I imagine it just feels uniquely bad to you regardless of how It gets written about. Um, You know, it's like why we thought that Mike Trout wouldn't get traded. You don't want to be the GM with that in your bio when you die.
0: Yeah, sure. And I don't know what to make of the Yankees' struggles because they have essentially a a league average offense to this point. It's a a 99 WRC plus, and that is not good. And that is not something that I anticipated with this Yankees team. Like, if you had asked me what their Achilles heel was coming into the season, I might have said, Starting pitching depth. I mean, right. they had a lot of starters, but few of them were dependable or had recent track records of durability, and that's been a bit of a problem too. And and that's another reason why people are mad at Brian Cashman. But really, it's the offense that's been the biggest issue, and it's largely the same hitters who have been brought back, and most of those hitters have been good before. And we've talked about their issues with runners on base and runners in scoring position. They're scoring, I think, an MLB low percentage of their base runners Mm -hmm. and Lindsay Adler has written about this recently, and and it does seem like maybe there's some problems with the way they're constructed. Like they're slow. They're kind of clogging the bases as Dusty Baker once would have said. They're making a lot of outs on the bases. As we've discussed, they're grounding into a lot of double plays, which can be a sign of a productive offense that puts a lot sure. of runners on base, but in their case has not been really. And so because they're station to station, because they have a lot of righties who are hitting the ball on the ground, They really have just not converted their opportunities, and I think a lot of that must be bad luck, and maybe some of it is lineup construction, but you look at the names here, and you would expect them to be better, and so it's always a tricky thing, like, whom do you blame in a situation like this? And they're not out of it or anything, but Mm. they are very much on the bubble. They're just a few games over 500 Entering Monday's game, they have roughly a 50-50 shot to make the playoffs, but a lot of that is wild card odds because yeah. they're behind Boston and Tampa Bay right. in the division and even a bit behind the Blue Jays at this point. And so it's a pretty tenuous spot, but you look at like their projections coming into this season and not that the, the Fangraph's preseason playoff odds are the be-all and end-all, but they were projected to have the best record and the best playoff odds of any team in the majors except the Dodgers. Like, coming into this year, there were certainly people who were pointing out, yes, they could have spent more, they could have been more aggressive, but given what they had, they really stacked up pretty well. They seemed like the favorite in that division and probably in that league, and so that hasn't happened. And so when you go from looking great On April 1st to looking not so great on June 28th, then is that Boone's fault for not getting more out of that roster? Is it just the player's fault? Is it Cashman's fault for not being more aggressive? Is it the Steinbrenner's fault? You have those choruses of, oh, if George were still alive... He would do this and he would do that. And he probably would have traded all of their homegrown players years ago.
1: Also, how old would he be if he were still alive?
0: (laughs) He'd be pretty old. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that if he were still alive, we maybe don't know what he would be doing right now. He might be like, I am tired. I would prefer to not do this.
0: Yeah. He'd be about to celebrate his 91st birthday, I guess. So, you know, possible, but- Yeah, I think uh, people remember the Steinbrenner spending, which was good at sometimes, but they forget that he was constantly draining the farm system and bringing in over the hill veterans. And so that might have happened too. So there are trade-offs here, but- I don't know what you do. Do you just wait and hope that they hit, which it seems like they should hit. You can make some upgrades. They've said that they will be more aggressive at the deadline and and we'll see where they can certainly shore up some of these positions. But I don't know. I don't know whether you say fire everyone or whether you just say this is one of those seasons where things don't work out. And you know, Yankees fans are frustrated because they haven't won a World Series since the ancient days of two thousand nine, <laughs> which is a long time in Yankees land.
1: <laughs> I, look, you, you you live the life you live, and so the <laughs> things that are emotionally resonant to you are emotionally resonant to you, and. I think that having perspective on their relative hardship is useful as a human being in the world, but also, (laughs) like, you live the life you do. And so I don't want to make fun of Yankees fans for being big crybabies because you've (laughs) waited a long time by your standards. But Mm -hmm. I, I, I I again submit that it is useful for people to be, well, they're Jets fans, so. They are fans of a bad team. azinga. No, I do wonder, you know, as we, we think about the impact that the changes to the ball had to the way teams are going to experience and perform offensively. Um, yeah. You know, this is a... They are they are literally dead last from a base running metric perspective by our base running metric at fangrafts and mm-hmm. you have a lot of guys who are big boppers and you've noted the the problems they've had hitting into double plays and not being able to, you know, bring runners in. And and so I wonder if some of what we're seeing is the effect of, you know, this this ball on this team, although I will say if, you know, anyone's going to be able to thump their way out of a, a slightly dejuiced ball, you would expect that it would be Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton. So, <laughs> yes, you know. but
0: perhaps not D.J. LeMayhew, who right. seems like he may have been one of the big beneficiaries of the ball. Not that he's not a good player, right. but yeah, like a lot of their offensive problems, you know, they're ninth in the majors or I guess, tied for eighth as we speak in home runs. And if they were first or second in home runs where they've typically been, then I think a lot of these issues with the the base clogging and the slow hitters, like that's okay if you're hitting a bunch of three run dingers, which historically they have, and they aren't to quite to the same extent this season. And so that really exacerbates the issues with like, you know, not making things happen on the base pass. Like they don't necessarily need to manufacture runs when they are hitting lots of home runs. And manufacturing runs is often counterproductive. And and that's been kind of a constant complaint about Yankees teams. Like, oh, they're going to be at some extra jeopardy in the playoffs because they're this all or nothing team. And there have been so many studies about that that have shown that it's sort of an insignificant factor. And there just isn't that much difference, really. And so if you can be the big boppers that they're supposed to be. And they've had injuries and, and that's been part of it too But yeah. so many teams had, you know. I'm just saying like, yeah, you could critique the lineup construction And say they have too many of this same sort of guy But they've had a lot of that same sort of guy in recent years too And they've just slugged their way through it And right. it's been okay But you're right, maybe the ball is affecting them more than the typical team
1: Yeah, I just wonder if, you know, Lindsay tweeted about this over the weekend That it was striking to her in seeing them play against Tampa and the Red Sox that, you know, they just, they do look slow, you know, yeah. they look like a team that is last in base running,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: which, you know, and we'll remind our listeners, isn't just taking into account like success on stolen bases. It's like converting opportunities and not grounding into double plays and what have you. So it's, it's an mm-hmm. all encompassing metric that's supposed to measure your efficacy on the, on the base paths, not just as a, as a base stealer in case yeah. people were confused about that but they do look by comparison like a team that is meant to thump a bunch of home runs and you know that is not the, the sum total of their offense but it is sort of a, a meaningful gap between where they've been in the past and where they are right now and I, I do wonder if it is a thing that they might find themselves sort of uniquely peeved by peeved right. by it yeah. Ben?
0: Yeah because it, it can be extra frustrating I think when you have that style of offense and it's not firing on all cylinders, yeah. then I think people just get more miffed about that when they see guys swinging and missing a lot and and not bringing in runners in scoring position. Whereas you have, well, I mean, the Rays are a high strikeout offense too, but yeah. the Red Sox are not and they put the ball in play and they converted a lot of their opportunities with runners in scoring position this weekend. And so that contrast was especially strong. And, yeah. You know, it's Quite like strike. a Tortoise and the hare sort of situation where you might rather have the bad base running team if it's also just the big beefy sluggers who hit more home runs than everyone like in the long run that might work out even if it's more frustrating for a series here and there but they just have not delivered in the big beefy slugger department this year. So that has really amplified the other issues and it has made them less fun to watch.
1: Well, and it's striking, you know, it's like you have you have certain expectations of guys coming into the year. And I think that often fans will be like, well, if this guy is doing X, then here's where the team is going to end up being. And like, if you had told me before the season started that Gary Sanchez's WRC plus would recover to a 128, mm-hmm. I would be like. They're leading the division by 15 games, (laughs) right? Because you just have this expectation of like who the underperformers have been in the last little bit and who the guys who have been sort of reliable stalwarts are. And so it is interesting to see like even within that, I'm like, oh, I would expect a good Gary to mean a really good Yankees team like good for Gary he had this garbage year last year he's you know he's still not hitting for a higher average but that's not his game he's gonna mm-hmm. you know bop a bunch of home runs and he's walking a bunch and then he's doing those things and they're still like behind the Red Sox <laughs> in the race so it's just a funny it's a funny thing and the Blue Jays I have to remind myself of that old yep. Carson that's <laughs> mm-hmm. a stoolie but yeah it's a Six and a half games shouldn't feel so insurmountable for this club that we thought would be like the best, one of the right. best teams in baseball. But it feels like they're going to have to work their way through the gauntlet of a wild card game at best and then kind of hope things go from there. You know, they're like a team where it's like the ball's been really important let me say what that means because everyone's like yeah meg it's baseball it's a funny thing about it the ball's <laughs> really important but it's like you you take the de-juiced ball and mm-hmm. it's like maybe really getting at those yankees and then you take the whack of sticky stuff on the ball and yeah. you know famously impacting some of them and they're probably <laughs> just sitting there being like we expected to have a very different relationship with this piece of equipment than we've ended up having
0: <laughs> yes yeah garrett cole i, I don't want to make Too much of it, but in June, we're talking five starts here since his spin rates first sank, and they've been a bit up and down in his past five starts. I don't know if he's experimenting with different substances or the lack thereof over those starts, but prior to June, all of his starts, he had an average four-seam fastball spin rate of more than 2,500 RPMs. Since then, it has been consistently below there and uh, sometimes quite quite a bit below there. And in those five starts, and he's been effective in some of them, but coming into June, he had a 1.78 ERA with a 1.75 FIP, and he was striking out 12.3 batters per nine. In the most recent five starts, he has a 4.65 ERA and a 5.63 FIP, and he's striking out 9.3 per nine. So he's had some effective games in there, but even the effective games were like four strikeouts in eight innings, six strikeouts in seven innings, and not saying he he can't be good or effective in this version of himself he still throws really hard and has good <laughs> stuff obviously but he has been diminished thus far. Again, fairly small sample, but it does raise your eyebrow a bit. And yeah. given that he was one of the strengths of this team coming into June, that is somewhat dismay that yeah. he has uh, not delivered at the same level. But they do have a lot of games left against their division opponents, particularly the Red Sox. So if they do get things together... They could make up some ground fairly quickly. So it's not hopeless, but Yankees fans are not accustomed to being in the situation where they're 50-50 shots to make the playoffs. They should just be in from day one. So I guess the good news is that Jason Dominguez is making his pro debut this week in the complex league. So help is on the way. A few years away, but it's on the way. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I don't know. It is an interesting thing to like sit with one's expectations of success and find them disrupted and needing Mm -hmm. to adjust them. And again, like I am glad in some ways I am glad that there are fan bases where the expectation is one of both effort and success. Right. Because there are plenty of fan bases. Who don't get to enjoy that. And I think that on some level, it does inform the sort of ownership's understanding of what they can get away with from a PR perspective. And so it is good for there to be teams where people's expectations are that they will try hard to win and then they will succeed at winning. Like that is good for the sport. Also, (laughs) like sometimes you just have a down year. You know, and it doesn't mean that everyone affiliated with the organization has to lose <laughs> their job. Like it sometimes sometimes it's just not your year. Sometimes the ball is different and guys aren't performing quite the way that you'd expect and I think part of it is that in the recent past as injuries have befallen the Yankees we've looked around and been like it's amazing what this depth has been able to do like they right. are yeah. dramatically <laughs> exceeding our expectations once 2019
0: they... everyone gets hurt and they3 games hurt. anyway <laughs> yeah. right and
1: I you know I remember we had a conversation with Lindsay in mm-hmm. August of that year about how are they doing this right like how is this team managing to pull it together the way that they have and and so i wouldn't blame a yankees fan who is perhaps just like uh, confronting it based on what they've been able to do when they've been brought low and think, oh, well, you know, they were able to manage that in a year where, you know, I was about to suit up for the club. And so Mm -hmm. now in this year where a lot of guys have been healthy and you have you have basically the same team back together. Well, why can't they? And so it is a natural human thing to have expectations informed by recent success or failure. But I also just would, you know, invite those Yankees fans to think about their good times because they've had a lot of them, many more than most other people. Declining
0: that invitation (laughs) politely, but. (laughs) Politely? Well, maybe not so politely. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll get some help later in the year. I don't know. Corey Kluber could come back. Luis Severino could come back. Zach Britton could come back. Maybe they'll make some trades at the deadline. Maybe they'll have a happy ending. Those poor Yankees. But yeah. yeah, things have been up and down. I guess inconsistent has been the watchword, which, uh, I always feel like inconsistent is not the most apt term to use it it's kind of a euphemism it really means like you just haven't been good enough (laughs) like that's what it comes down to I mean I guess you could frame it that way we've been good sometimes and not other times so we haven't been good all the time therefore we are inconsistent maybe I'm just scarred from the Joe chats at ESPN that they used to make fun of on fire Joe Morgan where Morgan would say that everything was inconsistent that was the problem with every team and player that just wasn't good enough it's true that they've had some cold streaks and some hot streaks in the middle of this year but most teams do so all right i did want to mention while we were talking about garrett cole and his lack of sticky stuff that we did have our first ejection we were wondering if and when that would happen and it did happen over the weekend And the first player ejected under the new foreign substance enforcement plan was Hector Santiago of the Mariners. Yep. Probably no one had Hector Santiago in the pool, but that's who it turned out to be. And he is not admitting wrongdoing here. He maintains his innocence, and we're going to get some testing on the glove that was confiscated But essentially, he had his glove checked between innings, and I will read some quotes here. The Umpire who checked it, I think, was Phil Cuzzy, and the crew chief was Tom Hallian. It was a, a case of consultation. The umpires all got together. Hallian said, what we do is we go around the whole glove feeling for anything that would be sticky or something. It was very noticeable. And then the rest of the crew inspected to make sure we were all in agreement. All four agreed that it was a sticky substance, and that's why he was ejected. Santiago denied that he was using anything untoward. He said, all I used was rosin. I used it on both sides, trying to keep that sweat from dripping down to the hands. And Scott Service, his manager, denied that there was any sticky substance on the glove. And the interesting thing here is that it's not necessarily the case that the empires were saying he was using spider tack or whatever exotic substance. Santiago said, what they told me was you can't use rosin on the glove hand. When I use rosin, I dab on both sides. The umpire said you couldn't use it on the glove hand. And if that's the case, I I went back and I looked at the memo that MLB sent to teams, and it says all substances except for rosin are prohibited. The playing rules clearly state that players cannot, quote, apply a foreign substance of any kind to the ball and may not, quote, have on his person or in his possession any foreign substance. Although pitchers may continue to use the rosin bag as contemplated by the rules, that's a weird word to use there, yep. official baseball rule 6.02d prohibits players from applying rosin from the bag to their gloves or otherwise dusting any part of their uniforms with the rosin bag. There's a Q&A section later in the memo that says, can pitchers continue to use the rosin bag on the pitching mound? And the answer is yes, but official baseball rule 6.02D prohibits players from applying rosin from the bag to their gloves or otherwise dusting any part of their uniforms with the rosin bag. So I guess it could be the case that he was just using rosin, but he was using it on the glove hand and the glove and that that is the problem and so even if they don't detect some exotic substance on there they could still say oh it was a lot of resin on the glove and therefore you are still guilty so That would perhaps be still grounds for suspension, but not the case that he was detected using something that he's not supposed to be using, just that I guess it was possibly applied to some part of his person or his equipment where it was not supposed to be. Although, again, service says it was not on the glove.
1: Yeah, And so this is part of the issue too, which is that you're not only enforcing to find the stuff that has change right spider attack and what have you but there are going to be guys who probably just don't have a complete understanding of the rule even as written yeah with respect to something like rosin and think that this is fine i don't know i did like the like forensic files approach they took yeah
0: yeah didn't seem like it was total csi like i the person who put the glove in the bag like didn't seem to be wearing gloves or, or anything right. as far as I could see. And then they shipped the glove off. I saw some tweets like the glove has arrived in New York. It's like the the chain of custody, I, I hope is clear here. But yeah, it's uh Santiago said once they take it back and check it, it's just sweat and rosin. If they're going to do all this science stuff, it's going to be sweat and rosin. We'll be all right. And Server said it's about 85 to 90 percent humidity today. He had rosin all over himself. When you put rosin on sweat, it gets sticky. Our guys are doing the right thing. We're following the rules. But Hallian said, you just use your judgment on what you would consider is sticky and not a norm for what we have seen over all our careers in baseball. Right. He's saying it's extra sticky even compared to the norm, but then again, umpires have not actually been checking pictures routinely, right. so do they even know what the norm is? <laughs> I don't know. And is it possible to, if you are super sweaty and it's hot and humid, and if you're using rosin in the approved way, might you still get it on some other part of your person? It's like we were talking about with the right. sunscreen, which Santiago said he used to use sunscreen and rosin, and here he was just using rosin, but again, like, could it maybe migrate in an innocent way to right. this, your glove, it, it seems hard to say.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there is the potential for not false positives, but false positives. Yeah, yeah. Right. And given that it is just rosin, presumably, like let's assume that it is just rosin and sweat, and there is some amount of natural substance migration that can take place. Like what are they what are they gonna do after that? You know, mm-hmm. like what is the conversation that they have with the player in the club to determine the veracity of what he just said? Like, can they look and be like, well, you didn't pitch especially well, so you're probably <laughs>
0: trying to <you> get <laughs> right, yeah. any
1: business here. I don't know. We
0: just got an email from a Patreon supporter, Brooks, who said the discussion about the sticky stuff enforcement often notes how awkward it is for everyone when the umps check a pitcher who just got shelled. So here's my idea. If at least one run scores that inning, the pitcher isn't checked. What's the downside? So that's an option, I guess, like the you suck exception. (laughs) Like if if you are ineffective, then uh, we just presume that either you weren't using sticky stuff or it wasn't a performance enhancer because you were so bad. Uh, Therefore, you don't get checked. Like in that inning when he was uh, checked or before he was checked, I think Santiago went walk, strikeout, single, single, walk. And then he was replaced after a run scored. So you could say, oh, he's exempt because he sucked.
1: (laughs) I don't think that you can do that, though, because Mm -hmm. the purpose of the rule is that someone is using a substance with the intent of improving their performance. Over the last two years, it's not like there have been no bad pitching performances, but we still think that the use of sticky stuff was pretty pervasive. Right. Yeah. And so. I think that if you're going to have enforcement that people view as fair and equally applied, that it is just better to check everybody and then do what they're doing here, which is follow up with testing if there's a case that is, you know, somewhat ambiguous, rather than say, Oh, well, you know, you gave up two earned. Cause it's like, what is the measure that you're using? Is it runs? Mm-hmm. Is it you gave up heart contact? Is it you gave up, you know, singles? Like what is what is the measure of it being sucky? And people yeah. might have one in mind, but I think that it is just cleaner and less apt to result in some sort of favorable treatment for some rather than others if you say, this is what we're doing. Position players when you pitch like we did, mm-hmm. we're going to check you for the sicky stuff. We're going to check the best starter and the worst reliever. Everybody gets checked because what we really don't want to have is some sort of inequitable enforcement that sort of prioritizes some guys over others. So yeah. I think, unfortunately,
0: you got to check them all. I agree. So we will see what the results say and whether Santiago can escape this suspension. But we had the first case of an ejection. And while we're talking about umpires intervening and having (laughs) confrontations with teams, can we just talk about this minor league incident, which happened on Friday in a AAA game involving the Louisville Bats, the Reds AAA affiliate. And this was a weird one. So we had... An umpire wardrobe malfunction, and it was not a pant splitting, which we have discussed before. This was a belt breaking. And so there was already some acrimony here going on between these teams, and people were upset with the umpire's strike zone. It was the bottom of the sixth, Then there was one out, and the bat's shortstop, Alfredo Rodriguez, was hitting, and he took a pitch, the second pitch of the at bat, which was called a strike, and he wasn't happy about it and he dragged his bat along the part of the batter's box where he believed that the pitch had crossed, and he was immediately ejected for that gesture. And then uh, the manager of the bats, Pat Kelly, came out to argue, but it settled down, and no one was ejected immediately, and he went back to the dugout, and then another batter came out, Errol Robinson, and he finished the at-bat, and he fouled a a pitch off his foot, and as he was kind of collecting himself after that foul, it became clear that there was an issue with the home plate umpire's belt. And this umpire, Takahito Matsuda, who I believe was promoted to AAA last season, but there was no AAA season last year. So he's a rookie ump in AAA, and he is trying to become the first Japanese-born MLB umpire which is a cool story and we wish him well, but this was not his best day. (laughs) (laughs) This sort of thing can happen to Big league Gumps too. But in this case, his belt, broke and it looks like his buckle just came clean off like yeah (laughs) i don't know how this happens i've never had a belt mishap quite like this and it's not like he is straining the belt like you sometimes see in the the pants splitting incidents he is a a slight person and so it's (laughs) what a (laughs) nice
1: what a what a tactful way of saying he's a skinny he's a skinny skinny guy
0: he is quite skinny and he couldn't continue without the belt because it looked like his pits would just fall down. <laughs> like, well, and
1: they have to. U- they use the belt to hold up the balls. True, true. Ball yes. bags. The weight. Of, I was about to do a bad <laughs> sentence, and I, I saw the edge of the cliff, and I pulled up.
0: <laughs> Barely. You still said ball bag, but but yes, he. You have to have something to, to equip that too. to. And also, those weighty balls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but not sticky at least so <laughs> oh, no. No. i would have been worried though about his pants staying yeah. up without the belt just aside needed... from the ball back because yeah. uh the pants were a bit billowy on him and so he borrowed a belt from i think the first base umpire yes it's somewhat striking to me like how much taking the belt off removed his authority in my eyes so like yeah it made him look just less authoritative it's like i don't know whether that had something to do with it but during that (laughs) wardrobe fix while they were exchanging belts and the umpires came together to try to help him with the belt it looked like they were trying to repair it at first but then they just did a belt swap and as he was trying to buckle the replacement belt the manager pat kelly of the bats who had come out before Apparently said something from the dugout and I wonder why this should be like one of those caption contests or something where we speculate about what Pat Kelly said to this umpire as he was struggling to keep his pants up. But whatever he said got him run out of this game and so Matsuda as he was trying to buckle his belt. Ejected the manager just like in in one little smooth motion, trying to buckle his pants with one hand, giving him the old heave-ho with the other. And that was a a spectacle that I had not quite seen. So, congrats to him on his mechanics here on multitasking, doing the ejection and (laughs) the belt buckling at the same time. But I don't know whether it had anything to do with like insecurity about just like how unofficial he looked in that moment where he had no belt and just looked almost naked without the belt in a way. And so I don't know if it was like, I need to maintain my authority here. I'm just (laughs) going to toss him while I keep my pants up with one hand or what. But this was quite entertaining. We will link to the video for everyone to enjoy.
1: He does look vulnerable in a way that is surprising. And it made me wonder... Were those his pants? Because they (laughs) They
0: seem seem very loose. Yeah, they do.
1: (laughs) They don't seem like they are well-fitting pants. So, you know, he either needed a new belt or a new pair of pants, and he wasn't going to take his pants off, so he had to... Use the belt but, um, but yeah it was, it was pretty, <laughs> he did seem quite vulnerable yeah. and I think mostly because the pants were so baggy and so he sort of had he sort of had the look it was not quite as extreme as this but it did remind me once he removed the broken belt and then was fumbling around with his compatriot's belt of like you know if you were like playing dress up in your parents clothes as a kid and mm-hmm. you're like trying to look like you're going to the office so you're wearing your <laughs> your parent's suit yes. and it doesn't fit on, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe you are one of several children sitting on each <laughs> other's shoulders trying to impersonate an adult person and you would pick a suit like that so that's kind of what it reminded me of and so I guess if that is also what it reminded him of that he might feel quite vulnerable and then any kind of snarky aside uh, would lead to an ejection because you just have to reassert your authority really
0: right. yeah well While we're talking about instances of of lack of professionalism on the field, I wanted to mention Zach McKinstry, who was a a hitting hero for the Dodgers over this weekend and seemingly improved at the plate as a result of a tip about his mechanics from the Dodgers, who informed him that his eyes had not been opened (laughs) as he was hitting. (laughs) And apparently. That was the key. So uh, he had a, a big weekend against the Cubs. He hit a grand slam, which was the first grand slam he had hit apparently at any level in his career, and he hit multiple home runs. And so he explained after the fact... Actually, I was closing my eyes on contact, which is wild (laughs) to think. So I was closing my eyes on contact, and we kind of saw that in San Diego. We started working on that, making sure my eyes were open, (laughs) and it helped. And I started seeing the ball a little bit longer out of the pitcher's hand. It's been good. I've been hitting the ball hard ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Dave Roberts said that was a new one for me. He said he probably wouldn't have hit the Grand Slam if his eyes were closed. So turns out... (laughs) keep your eye on the ball still has some validity at the major league level
1: when this came out craig goldstein g chatted me and is like they they build a world-class player development organization and then the thing is like hey buddy you want to keep your eyes open though yeah i just uh yeah it's like it's like when players finally get lasik and then they're like yeah it turns out like being able to see is great really helps a
0: lot (laughs) yeah Also, just opening your eyes. Yeah,
1: just gotta, you gotta keep those bad boys open.
0: Yeah, those Dodgers, they're just on the cutting edge of everything. I haven't gone back and reviewed the video to see because one of the things that's interesting to me is that I think studies have shown that hitters cannot actually track the ball, like in its last, you know, little bit of the leg of the journey from the mound to home plate because it's traveling so fast that you just don't have the ability to track it really. And so, There are tests with like visual occlusion where you block out the hitter's view somehow over that last little bit and it doesn't really affect their ability to hit the ball because, like, all of the information that they can receive and process in time to swing that happens before that last little bit of the journey. So, in theory, like having your eyes closed at contact. Should not actually matter if you had your eyes closed like a little bit before contact. And so I don't know at what point he was closing his eyes. Like, if you closed your eyes when the pitcher threw the ball, that would be very bad. If you closed their eyes like as the bat was making contact, it seems like that shouldn't be as big a deal. Right. Although I've seen some studies, I'll I'll link to some of the studies on this, but I think there's some hitters who maybe actually intentionally take their eye off the ball in the last little bit of its trajectory so that they can focus on the point of contact and that way they can at least get some feedback like did they hit it the way that they wanted to did they miss it how did they miss it were they late were they too high or too low and at least you could get that feedback and maybe apply it to your next swing but In general, I think the ball is just moving too fast and and too much at that point to actually see it and swing and adjust your swing in time. So I don't know. I, I would think that McKinstry might have had to have his eyes closed like a little bit before he made contact in order for that to actually hurt him. But in general, probably for the best to have your eyes open. So that seems like sound advice.
1: Yeah, it's just like as a as a default, mm-hmm. when engaged in a bat and ball skill that is dependent <laughs> on hand eye coordination, you right. know the eyes right in there. It's yes. right in the it's right in the skill set. So you mm-hmm. got to keep keep them open. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's like when people learn to shoot guns in TV shows and movies, and they always uh, squeeze their eyes closed, and then the the expert marksman says, "No, you got to keep your eye open." I don't know if that's actually correct because I don't know anything about marksmanship, but maybe the same principle applies that you want to see your target generally, whether you're shooting or swinging.
1: Though it is funny that if you if you do slow-mo on pitchers, a lot of them, they look like their eyes are closed at the yeah. moment of release. So, True. you know, that's confusing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's also sort of scary. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to mention, I just wanted to shout out the Tigers for a second because when we were talking last time about bad teams and losing teams and whether it's worse to have a team that loses a lot or whether it's significantly worse to lose like 100 games or to lose 90 games like you're missing the playoffs either way, is there like a linear relationship between losses and lack of enjoyment? And one thing we were saying is that It matters like where you are kind of in the competitive cycle and do you have entertaining players and is there hope on the horizon? And I think the Tigers are a pretty good example of that. They're going to be a losing team on the season, I think. They're not going to make the playoffs. In that sense, their season is sort of hopeless, but they have achieved a level of respectability where they're not bad to watch anymore. And going back to the beginning of May they're 26 and 25. I think over their last 45 games, if we're cherry picking, they're 25 and 20. So they've actually held their own and treaded water lately. And they have Manning, Mize, and Scoople all in the rotation now. And all three of those guys have ERAs under four in June, albeit not with the most impressive peripherals in Manning's case and in Mize's case, but like That's the Tigers rotation of the future, and it is assembled now, and most days you get to see one of those guys go. They have been respectable, and I think if you are respectable, even if you end up with a losing record, if you can keep yourself in games and you can give your fans a glimpse of the good team to come, and there's a long way to go, and the lineup is not great, and there are a lot of holes on that team. And Akil Badu is still good, which is fun. He's uh, sustained his early season performance. He's kept it up, and that's nice to have that productive player in the lineup. But on the whole, you know, there's a a long way to go still. But they're good enough now, and they're enough promising players that, you know, it's not terrible to be a Tigers fan now. So I think that's a good example of a team that is, like, losing and not going to make the playoffs. But it's not a lost year. It's not a... Depressing year, so that's something.
1: (laughs) It is something. Casey Mize has that big wide face, you know. It's a big (laughs) wide face. I think you're right, though. I think that what you want, and we will we will have to see how the other sort of players who are thought to be part of what will be the next good Tigers team round into form. I think that there is some concern there, and you know there have been some ups and downs even among the three starters who you named. But Mm -hmm. I think that if you can give a glimpse of something exciting that might end up defining a fans experience of the team for the next couple of years that's that's something and like mm-hmm. yeah sure maybe you look at badu and you say well you're probably running an unsustainable babbitt but like it's a fun thing who cares mm-hmm. right you want you want to have fun this is part of why i think that it's so discouraging when teams that are bottoming out trade like the last respectable big leaguer they have because you're like who are are people gonna watch and then it turns out that the answer is Cedric Mullins and it's fine but like (laughs) you worry that you know some of the trades you're making are gonna leave people with very little and instead you get something that people can be excited about you want there to always be an answer to like whose jersey would you buy yeah. And there needs to be a guy who you would think about, even if you don't pull the trigger, because those are very expensive. And sometimes, in the case of the All Star jerseys, just like ugly in a way that even I can't love. Um, but there, there needs to be an answer. You want a, a fan to be able to look at a guy on the twenty-six man, not just a prospect, but a guy on the twenty-six man, and say, "I think about buying that guy's jersey." Right. You know, and if there's and no you, one, you can then wear you're... it
0: for years to come. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: And so if and if the answer is no one then you're in then you're in real rough shape but yeah respectability is is a lot so much mm-hmm. of our experience of baseball is just being able to as we said last time imagine and or pretend that you're one really good hot streak away from being in the playoff conversation mm-hmm. and if you can manage that you know you're then you're somewhere you're getting somewhere
0: so yeah Okay. Well, congrats to the Tigers on getting to that point where (laughs) they could have a far-fetched dream of things working out. But even if they don't this year, at least, you can look ahead to next year, the year after. You can see things starting to come together. They're coming out of this. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. They're on the upswing, not on the downslope. So yes, that's something. Of course, they've gone through some truly terrible years to get to this point. So (laughs) there's that. And I'm still like, yeah, as you said, I'm not sure that all those guys are going to be great. I still don't know what Casey Mize is going to be exactly. Like he has turned out to be not a high strikeout guy really. And so maybe that limits his ceiling, but maybe he could gain some strikeouts at some point. He's clearly like a, a tinkerer and a pitch design and a technology type. And I don't know whether his ceiling is you know down from when he was number one pick, number one prospect. Maybe it's not. Now, maybe it's more mid-rotation guy or maybe it's too soon to say, but at least that's someone you can pencil in there for years to come. You know, granted, uh, pitchers are, are always variable and it's tough to count on them, but still, uh, there's uh, the makings of a, a strong rotation there.
1: Yeah, and at least a wide-faced one.
0: That too. All right. Well, it's almost time to watch Otani, so I guess I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> the angels call. Enjoy. Well, shortly after we finished speaking, Shohei Otani homered again. He hit his 26th to tie Vlad for the major league lead. It was 117.2 miles per hour and looked and sounded every bit of it. He hits homers faster than we can post podcasts. He's not Kyle Schwarber or anything, but the guy's pretty good. I guess I sort of jinxed the Tigers and Matt Manning. They got blown out by Cleveland. Matt Manning's ERA in June, no longer under four. In fact, no longer under eight. But hey, you're going to get some growing pains. and he ain't Angels beat the Yankees five to three. Cashman and Boone are trending again on Twitter as I speak. Dark days in Yankees nation The Yankees were 0-4 with runners in scoring position on Monday Adding to the frustration Of course the Angels were 0-10 And they won anyway One thing I meant to mention earlier When I was discussing the experience of watching one team just about every day Is how much the quality of the broadcast crew matters When you are hyper-focused on a team like that When you're spending so much time listening to one group of announcers Because usually if I'm just flipping between teams and games I'll just catch snippets of announcers And it might not be enough to form Form a complete opinion of them Or I'll just kind of Tune them out Or maybe I'll even mute them Apologies to any Broadcasters who are listening But when you're watching Day in and day out You get a feel for that broadcast And look It's a matter of taste But the Angels TV broadcast It's not my favorite I wouldn't say it Greatly detracts From the experience But I also wouldn't say It enhances the experience They do discuss Otani Incessantly Which of course I approve of But other than that I don't feel like I'm learning much When I watch those broadcasts Which maybe is Too high a bar I don't necessarily have to be learning something if i'm having a good time there's a lot of corniness and they do own the corniness it's not an unpleasant listen i have heard far worse and they don't do a lot of misinformation or misleading information which is kind of the cardinal sin for broadcasts i think there's not a lot of denigrating new age analytics or anything like that just doesn't really stand out for me and when i'm watching that much angels baseball and what is on the screen is not always the most entertaining to have a really above average booth would be a big bonus i think so you know. No, it'd be nice if the Angels could trade for the Dodgers booth or the White Sox booth or the Mets booth maybe just to sweeten my Shohei Otani watching experience some booths just have that incredible chemistry and they can also mix in the first person experience of people who played the game with some of the sabermetric insight and it becomes a nice blend and there's a little bit of ribbing and joshing but in a good-natured way and I know Victor Rojas left the Angels broadcast after last season so it could be that they're just finding their footing and it could also be That you like the Angels broadcast more than I do Again, I don't hate it It's just for the first time in a while The commentary is actually affecting my enjoyment of baseball in a real way on a day-to-day basis And that kind of came to mind on Monday When I heard David Cohen doing the broadcast of the Shohei Yotani game Not that the Yes Network booth is universally great either But Cohen is pretty great So when you hear that kind of analysis That's just kind of a cut above That makes you miss it when you don't have it You can support Effectively Wild And make sure that you'll never miss that on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jeffrey Pilch, Ev or Ev, Grant Mulligan, Chandler Ellsbecker, and Matthew Felling. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email and email. At podcast com or via the patreon messaging system if you are a supporter thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance in sweltering portland oregon where he has no air conditioning please try to stay cool and stay safe dylan and do not vomit as you are editing the podcast the way that dylan bundy vomited on the mound as he was pitching against the yankees on monday yes that happened again bo Burrows can sympathize thanks as always for listening and we will be back with another episode soon talk to you then Like a leather belt I am unlatched on the